Hello and a very warm welcome to Changing World New Opportunities. I'm Louise Farrand. And I'm Lorna Kennedy. In our second season of the podcast, we're interviewing senior investment figures from Master Trust Pension Schemes. We're asking them to reflect on the investment challenges facing them as DC leaders. What are they excited about and what's keeping them awake at night? If you'd like to find out as soon as a new episode comes out, you could subscribe to our email alert at www.dcif.co.uk and click hear more. Or you could follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at DCIF underscore UK. On with the show. Hi, everyone. This week, we spoke to Naomi Clark, Head of Investment Product Management at USS. It was such a great conversation, wasn't it, Lorna? We really heard so much about her career path, which I thought was something that's definitely coming out of the podcast episode so far is a lot of people have taken a slightly winding route into pensions and Naomi isn't different, is she, in that respect? No, you're right. But the thing that's shown through from her career path is that she just, she gets things done. She's done various things, but she loves learning from other people. She's not afraid to ask questions. And yeah, she's ended up where she is at USX. Amazing. Yeah, I thought she was so impressive, but she's very modest and talked about, as you say, learning from other people and not being afraid to ask questions. She also talked about being seconded to First State Super in Sydney, spending time with the Canadians and Americans. And I thought it was so interesting what she said about how USS tries to have a global investment perspective rather than just looking at the UK. And I also thought it was really interesting how she said they try to share their learnings wherever possible. I think that's so important and something we could all probably do better. I'm certainly guilty of going, oh, that's great, and kind of internalizing rather than sharing it. And I think we all need to try and do that a bit more. Yeah, the importance of collaboration. And I suppose it came across that if you've got an issue, don't internalize it. Let's go out and learn from others and then share that knowledge, which was fab. And they're, I guess they're a little bit different to some of the other people we're talking to is they have DB and DC which was one of the reasons they're a little bit further along the Illiquids journey. So they've got quite a chunky, around 20%, I think, allocation to Illiquids, which again is different to some of the others I've spoken to. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be, it's so interesting in the podcast, listening to their sort of journey with Illiquids and some of the sort of slight, I don't know if stumbling blocks is the right word, but the challenges that they encountered along the way. So February 2020 was... The first time they allocated to a liquids in their DC growth fund, Naomi said. Obviously, 2020 spring of was a bit of a challenging time. They had transport allocations, but ultimately it worked out well. So anyway, we'll hear a little bit more from Naomi in terms of how that all happened and a little bit more about the liquids journey that they've been on, which I think will be really fascinating for other schemes. So yeah, anyway, enough from us and on with the episode. Hi, Naomi. Thanks so much for joining us in your lovely studio today. <laughs> Thanks very much for coming along to the lovely USS offices. Oh, well, and we've got a fantastic view. It is a good view, isn't it? It's a bit of a gloomy day. It is a bit of a gloomy day. Summer has well and truly ended, we've just been saying, haven't we? Nearly got blown away on the way to USS office today. <laughs> good thing you had your suitcase to anchor you down. I know. I had my suitcase. The brolly wasn't a good move, so I ditched the brolly and just stuck with the suitcase. <laughs> good job. Well, Naomi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career path just to start us off with? Yeah, sure. It's a bit of a random wandering journey. So I started off having left university with a degree 
and obviously something very financial English literature. (laughs) (laughs) And I wasn't really sure what to do. And my father suggested going and doing a grad scheme. And he did have a particular one in mind, which was Maersk. And that is a really large container shipping company. And I think this was largely due to his main passions being like shipping and flying. Because, (laughs) yeah, it was his two main passions. But I had the absence of anything else. I said, oh, why not? And applied for this and did get a place. So I started off and it was a really interesting grad scheme where you rotated around for like a few years. And the first placement I got was in the treasury department, which I remember saying to my father was a bit of a problem because obviously I'd just done this degree in English literature (laughs) and didn't really understand maths. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not really sure how that happened. But I actually found it really, really interesting And Maersk is a huge company and obviously like a lot of ship financing, ship leasing, and they were very active in purchasing new ships and that sort of thing. Um, Sort of completely globally and all the treasury was really, a lot of it was run out of London. So I just found it really fascinating. Following that, I sort of realised that I didn't think culturally Maersk was the right fit for me as an individual. Really interesting company, but just wasn't quite right for me. And actually after nine months, I just sort of thought, do you know what, I actually think I do want to do something maybe more financially related. And I ended up getting a job at JP Morgan in the investment bank in the sort of cash equities department and found that really interesting. But massive baptism of fire having done this degree in English literature. And I just felt like I didn't completely know what people were talking about. And it was quite terrifying. So then I decided I would do a qualification, professional qualification. And actually, I ended up becoming a chartered accountant, which was really, really helpful. And then actually, I went on to do a degree in financial accounting, which I just really found really useful to kind of understand all the, all the concepts and continued during this time sort of working at JP Morgan. Really great place to work. They encourage you, really actively encourage you to take a new role every two years, which I think is quite brave as a business because that's largely how long it takes somebody to train up and become remotely useful in their role and then they move on. But I did a number of different roles around the investment bank, got a bit involved in the Bear Stearns merger, which was really interesting. And then I ended up in the security servicing business, again, sort of by chance. It was a good organisation in that people would often just sort of tap you on the shoulder, you'd have worked on a project, they'd say, oh, actually, there's this role going, do you fancy doing that? Whilst in security servicing, one of the MDs I was working for wanted to set up a new distribution support product, so helping asset managers to kind of distribute their funds more. We didn't have, at the time at JP Morgan, great capability in Luxembourg for that sort of fund distribution. So I went over to Luxembourg and set up this distribution support function, working there and also working a lot in Dublin, kind of more supporting the US managers who would often prefer to domicile their funds in Dublin. And that role was really interesting. Learned a lot about fund platforms, all that sort of thing. After a while, he actually left JP Morgan, Howard this was, and came and worked at USS. And he came here to be our COO and later ended up as deputy CEO, a member of our USIM board. And after about six months, he called me up and just said, you are massively missing a trick. This place is amazing. <laughs> it is so great. Such a great place to work. So much better than JP Morgan. Like amazing, you know, really good work-life balance, real sense of purpose, serving the academic community, hugely sort of thoughtful academic institution. Just you've got to come. So I came and met Roger Gray, who was our CIO at the time. And I remember meeting him in the boardroom, actually. I was terrified because mm-hmm. there wasn't particularly a role. It was just, I'll come and meet Roger. You've got to find something for you to do here. I remember Roger just sort of saying to me, well, you know, what do you think you're going to do at USS then? <laughs> I've got no idea. <laughs> I just said to him, I don't really know, Roger, but I do know that over the last few years, I've had a new job every couple of years. 
sort of gone okay and I think I can get things done Mm -hmm. and and I don't know what it is that you need me to get done but I'm pretty happy just to come and roll my sleeves up and they did offer me a job and I can't even remember what my job title was but it was basically getting things done and did loads of different projects you know like we transitioned our private equity like our illiquid sort of service provider all the accounting from JP Morgan to Aztec which I guess looking back for JP Morgan was probably not the best use of me coming here We didn't really have a formal LDI programme, so I set up the LDI programme here, which, again, was a huge learning curve. I didn't really know much about LDI when I started that. But, you know, we learned about that. Roger was a huge support. He obviously knows everything in the world there is to know about LDI. And we did that. Then we realised, oh, well, actually, we probably need a treasury function if we've got an LDI function. So I set that up. Then around that time, we had benefit change. We moved to being a hybrid scheme. And I had a few ideas around that because I'd worked a lot on the fund platform side with the distribution support. And I'd seen lots of these kind of retail and institutional platforms. And I'd seen a lot of the kind of negatives of some of those insurance wrappers, the high fees, that sort of thing. Howard had a similar background to me. And we just campaigned tirelessly to build our own investment platform for DC internally. And that was something that I think the board probably quite rightly thought, well, okay, we've got a year to implement this benefit change, which is a lot when we're moving from DB to hybrid. And we were replatforming our sort of to capita, you know, in Liverpool on our administration at the same time. But, you know, amazingly, the board did take a risk and said, yeah, actually, we think this will be better for members because for us to run our platform is like three basis points. And we'd have been paying away like 25 to someone else. And we had the foresight that really I think Howard and I could see that our internal teams, our asset management teams were phenomenal. They were really, really good. And we had access to Illiquids via Mike and his team. Because of the permitted links rules, we knew we would never be able to have our internal product on those insurance platforms because we didn't want to become a fully sort of retail asset manager with fund vehicles. That just wouldn't have been our members' best interest to incur that extra cost. So we set up this platform and we set it up with all external managers because we thought it was a bit too much to ask the board to, you know, to suddenly put all our internal funds in. And we got that up and running. And then very quickly we were saying, OK, well, right, our GEMS team are very good. They've got an incredible track record. They're a very good team, very reasonable cost and gems is typically quite an expensive area especially for active management so we said to the board let's really get you comfortable with gems and let's put that on our dc investment platform for our members and so we did that and then we said oh well it does work so how about we do a liquid and they said oh yeah that's a lot so it probably took us you know 18 months maybe even two years because i did keep having children during this period (laughs) so i wasn't always around to sort of get them comfortable with that and to get ourselves comfortable with that, all the challenges that go with that, valuations and liquidity, all that sort of thing. And so then it came to 2020 and it was February 2020 when we started doing our first allocations towards illiquids in our growth fund. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and we thought, oh, this is really great timing. Not Because we did have quite a lot of transport assets like Heathrow, Moto Service Station. So it was testing time, really testing. And obviously valuations took a hit in some of those areas and it really tested our valuation process in that kind of daily priced world. But actually it was a positive, I think, because everything worked exactly as we thought it would work. We had no problems. We pushed through, we stuck with our original plan of like increasing the allocation every month throughout 2020 to get to our position that we're at now of, you know, like 20 odd percent. And actually, as those assets recovered in 2021, we had a phenomenal year of outperformance. 
And we really, really benefited from having sort of held our nerve and kept going slowly, steadily, exactly as we'd always planned on doing. Since then, I guess I've been working, continuing to work a lot on DC, but also working a lot on our responsible investment ambition, which is something that we're really focused on at the moment. So that's kind of my career path. It's a winding story, but... Interesting story. It feels as though a lot of it was, I was asked to do this and then I did it. How did you learn about things? Because it feels as though you've had to assimilate all this knowledge very quickly and kind of create, create, create in areas that you might not have been that familiar with. Often it's just been learning from other people, like whether that's internally within the organisation or externally. I think also when you're in a small organisation like USS, you just have to learn from other people as much as you can. And like sometimes, for example, on DC, I spent quite a lot of time in Australia with some of the Australian funds. Like I did like a secondment for a few weeks or a month to like First State Super in Sydney and organised via one of our old chairs of the investment committee. We've spent time with like the Canadians or the Americans. We've really always just tried to have like a global perspective and not limit ourselves to the UK market. I think we know we're quite big and it's unique to have the asset position that we have and the complexity of asset mix that we have. And I think that's really sort of culturally USS. Like I think our PMG team, they're constantly collaborating with other investors to do big deals. And it is the nice thing about being in a pension fund is that like USS is you don't really have a competitor. Your peers are your allies. And it's often to advance the industry. It's really great to work together. And I think that's a real benefit. And I think People are really receptive to collaborative conversations and that sort of thing. And we always try and share our findings, if we can, with people that we've spoken to to make sure that they feel they get something back from having invested the time in conversations with us. Hopefully that builds relationships and means that they're happy to continue talking to us. But I think really just talking to people is the main way. We're also really lucky we've got a really incredible board of trustees who've got really good, diverse experience, whether they're academics or industry practitioners. And we leverage them a lot, like in the illiquid process. And even when we were creating the DC scheme, we had a subcommittee of the board who would then be there to run ideas past and have conversations, that sort of thing. I think that has worked really well. I mean, I think it's great they give their time to do that. It's a lot of time. Well, they're a great group. I was lucky enough, it was during the PLSA investment conference they popped over to our office in Edinburgh and we did a little kind of teaching just for an hour. They're very dedicated because they were determined they weren't going to miss any sessions at the PLSA. I was very impressed. So they had a taxi waiting. The session ended, hot-footed it over to our office. 45 minutes with us and then back to the PLSA. They are hugely professional. Yeah. It's really, it's a massive asset to the fund, I think. This sort of really high quality committed trustees. And it's a difficult job. It's a huge scheme, very complex and complex stakeholders. They're all very dedicated. They are in the building all the time. We do ask a lot of them in terms of time commitment. And they always give it really willingly. It's really incredible. I mean, I don't know what they sign up for. It's probably like 10 days a year. I mean, there's absolutely no way they're working 10 days a year. It's extraordinary. But they're so keen to learn about what we do. They go and visit our Liverpool office frequently and come and walk the floor. It's really great. We're very lucky. Well, talking about complexity, designing an investment strategy for a pension scheme, I guess it's also complex when you bring into the fact that people don't know when they're going to retire or they change their mind and... How do you deal with that? How do you think about that when building your investment strategy? Yeah, it is really complex. And actually, I always say that USS, the one most important thing, but I think for most other schemes, probably, you know, the two most important things that you can get members to do is engage with their target retirement age and then depending on the contribution rate of the employer, but their contributions. I actually think if you can just get members to engage with those two things, that will change their outcomes dramatically. 
And they don't need to engage on like what fund they're invested in, that sort of thing. It's actually almost preferable for them to leave that alone. Just tell us when you're going to retire. Like, think about that. Think about it a lot. Think about it every few years, particularly as, you know, after 50. Because it is very difficult and you do sort of see what you see in member behaviour relative to what they sort of said they were going to do. It is often quite different. And I think it's a human thing, isn't it? Starting to think about getting towards the end of your tenure as an academic. It's very difficult to think about, well, when will I be happy to give that up? I think particularly for academics, it's not a job. It's a passion. It's a life's work. And we tend to see that a lot of our members work a lot longer than their target retirement age. That's very normal. I think that's probably not normal for most schemes, but we tend to see that as a trend. They work for longer. And I think that's because also academia is more amenable for part-time working, that sort of thing. And they become often very eminent towards the end of their career. And I think it must be quite hard to give that up. We do see that quite a lot. And that behavioural aspect is really important. So for us at the end of our lifestyle, even though we know that actually for the majority of our members by far and away the majority of our members, their DC pot will be their tax-free cash because their DB lump sum, they can commute back in to DB benefit and then take that as tax-free cash. So, so we know we know that that's what likely they're going to do. But actually, because we know that they're also likely to keep working sort of past the target retirement date that is in the system, because we also know they don't really engage, they're quite normal human beings, they don't really engage with their pension, we don't have a fully cash retirement strategy which we could be quite justified in having, I think, because of the structure. But we do see them staying invested. So it's something that actually is up for review again, because we're going through benefit change at the moment, we're sort of in evaluation. Obviously, you're required to do this triannual review of your DC scheme suitability. Actually, at USS on the investment side, we do it annually. We do the full thing annually. We just think that's in the best interest of members. We're quite well resourced. We do have quite often evaluation, sometimes more than every three years. <laughs> so we prefer to do that. We like to look at member behaviour. We just feel comfortable doing that. And so we're looking at it again at the moment. Do we move to slightly more cash or not? But the other thing we think about is if people do want to have an element of drawdown, then we don't want them to be completely sort of out of the market for that. So I think at the moment we're on this kind of 50-50, which I think works quite well. Whether we change that or not, I genuinely don't know, but we are thinking about it at the moment. The other thing we think about quite a lot here when we're thinking about investment strategy is I think we place probably more value on diversification than the average UK DC scheme. So even right in our growth phase, we have government bonds, for example, in our growth phase at the moment. We actually always have done. Um, We have liquid assets. We have a lot of different asset classes. And We don't see that very commonly in the UK DC market. But for example, when we look at Australia, we do see that much more diversification. And I think for us, our philosophy has always been, well, we have a DB pool of money that we're managing and we have the same members in this DC section. Now, we absolutely would not have a largely equity heavy DB scheme. We have a diversified DB scheme, as many schemes are when they're open. And it felt very strange to us. We were sort of looking at the UK market and we were thinking, I just, I'm not sure I can completely understand why people have this complete difference in asset allocation between DB and DC. For us, our investment strategy and our asset allocation process is very much, we have our return expectations and they're the fundamental building blocks of our asset allocation. And then we look at what we're trying to achieve over the long term. We look at our targets, like we have CPI plus targets. And we build a portfolio really from the bottom up to try and meet those targets, but to retain that diversification benefit. 
At the moment, for example, it is difficult to justify not having bonds in a growth growth phase, which hasn't always been the case. And we have had years where we think we've slightly suffered. But our performance the last few years, I think that diversification benefit and also the significant allocation to a liquids that we have, which is kind of around 20%, we've seen really great outperformance relative to our peers. So we think about it quite differently to other schemes, probably, and it hasn't always worked. But I think over the long term, and that's what we're trying to do over the long term, it is working and we think it will continue to work well. Why do you think that's an unusual approach then? Why do others not do it? I really think it's partly cost. So again, if you look at the Australian market and how they moved from DB to DC, they basically had quite light regulation and certainly no sort of cost caps or that sort of thing. So they effectively moved, okay, this is what we do for DB. Oh, well, let's just do that for DC. And then cost pressure came. And I think when I went over quite a long time ago, I thought, gosh, it's really quite expensive, these DC products. But actually now, if you look, it's much more in line with global market standards, but they still do have illiquids, diversification, a much more DB-like approach. Whereas I think in the UK, we had the charge cap sort of immediately. And even though the charge cap, by the way, was a reasonable amount, Mm. it focused every provider's mind on, oh, cost, that's the main thing. And clearly, passive equity, you know, it's cheap to deliver. And over the last 10 years, it has by and large worked. Will it work for the next 10 years? I don't know. And if you're starting from that very low cost base, how do you then incorporate other asset classes? Things like this productive finance initiative, which, by the way, obviously we think is great at USS. We're a huge believer in liquid assets. We've been doing this for a long time. But I think it will be difficult for providers to increase costs and it will cost more money. I think that's probably what's driving it. I mean, I don't know. I've never worked at Master Trust, so I don't know. You might speak to someone, they might tell you. But I think a lot of it is driven by cost. Well, I'm glad we've got into liquids because we were going to ask you about the mansion house reforms. Tell us a bit about that. I saw that USS hadn't signed the compact. Tell us why not. Yeah, so we didn't sign the compact. We do think it's a great initiative. We're really, really supportive of it from a government perspective. The reason why we didn't sign it really was because we have significantly more than the 5% allocated to liquids already, more like 20%. I mean, it obviously it varies daily given market movement, but it might be sort of a fine print that most people haven't noticed. But there is a requirement in there that you're saying that you will add to your or grow your allocation. And we did go back to the government and we did say, look, we're very happy to sign this. We're very keen. We're a big supporter. But we actually don't think we're going to grow our allocation and certainly not meaningfully. Like there is illiquidity, clearly. And I think 20, max, maybe 25% of a default fund, I think that's enough from a liquidity perspective. And we're comfortable with that. Everything works at that level. But we didn't want to be held to doing more. And particularly when other people were being asked to do 5%. But they didn't want to take that out. And so we just said, well, I just don't actually think we can sign it then, really, because I think it's disingenuous. We can't really increase. So it was a shame because we are a big supporter. Absolutely. And we clearly have got far more than 5% required. But yeah, not for us at that point, sadly. And what did you think of the UK focus of the Mansion House? I don't actually think, though, it was in the pledge. It's sort of implied, but it's not actually worded. It's not actually in there, is it? I can see what they're trying to do with that. I mean, you know, when I look back on our private markets journey, I think that it will be the case that schemes will dip their toe in UK markets. When you're buying a liquid asset, I sort of think about it a bit like buying a house. If you've never bought a house before, 
And if England is your home country and you understand the legal system, you understand the borrowing, you understand planning, like nearby planning, like that might be negative on the value of your house, you know, you understand how to get access around like sewage works, that sort of thing. It's a lot easier, isn't it, just to buy your first house in England. And it might be that you buy a few houses and then you think, oh, okay, I've got the confidence now to go and buy another jurisdiction. Yes, I need to get some different advisors. And yes, I don't speak the language. And yes, I don't understand everything. I think that's what liquids is like. Like when we started our programme, were we going and buying Spanish assets? No, we just bought assets in the UK because that's easy. It's not easy, is it? But it's easier. Now we have a global programme and we have a global network of advisors and we are genuinely global. But I'm not sure the government needed to make such a huge point of that I think it is probably what will happen anyway with people as they're starting out and I wonder whether they may have put people off by sort of might have felt like they're tied into something that they're probably tied into anyway but they don't necessarily yeah, but they don't they want are. to be told what to do do they no I think that's the thing and I'm not sure they needed to tell people to do that. I think that's what would have happened I'm sure it will be good for UK infrastructure because I'm sure people will in the first instance invest with more within the UK And what about your illiquid journey? So you've got up to 20% now. So how has that come about and what's it made up of? Yeah, so thinking about our illiquid journey, you really have to start like quite a long time ago, like 15 years ago. Actually, no, it must be more than that now. 17 years ago when we started illiquids in our DB section a long time ago. And we started off buying largely sort of funds, private equity funds, that sort of thing. And we grew our expertise via buying funds to then start doing, you know, co-investments with managers and again, then sort of growing, understanding that process. And then we started doing more kind of direct investments. And really for us, the plan was always to be doing the majority of our investments ourselves directly, because obviously you remove that layer of fees, complexity, but also more importantly, you have control. So I think for us having control, like we often take a board seat or have much more control within a company or influence. And I think we find that de-risks the process. It's also then about being able to sort of the other investors that you invest with, again, control over those often like-minded global pension funds who have a very long-term outlook for a company. And I think that makes you a really responsible long-term owner and asset owner of a business. So that's kind of our journey. For DC, we obviously, we already had this quite big programme of investments and it was then really more about unitising them and making sure that we could value those assets regularly enough that we were comfortable with the sort of valuation of the entire default fund, which obviously we don't value our assets daily and you just can't. But it's about making sure that you have refreshed enough valuations that you're comfortable. It's also things like making sure you have enough diversity. So we do take very big stakes often in assets. And what we wouldn't want is for one asset to become a dominant part of a portfolio. So it's about making sure that the assets that we sort of have within DC are diversified enough that you don't take a hit on one asset and it can affect at the total growth fund level. And I think that is probably where other master trusts may struggle is finding access to either funds or on their own, but diversified enough pools of assets that you're not materially impacting your growth fund or your default fund when you have a problem with an asset, which, by the way, will happen. That's life. But you just need to make sure that, you know, again, it's like we always come back to diversification. Perfect. Right. And I'd like to ask you way more about that, but I'm conscious of time. And I know we have to talk about the net zero journey. That's very much on my list. And I know it's on your list as well. So tell me where USS is. Our net zero journey, we made a commitment probably a few years ago, and we are sort of tracking kind of Paris aligned targets and I would say so far touch wood going going very well which is great but 
what we have had to do is be very transparent with our trustees and internally that whilst at the moment things are decarbonising quite nice and smoothly, which is great, we know that won't always be the case. And like our carbon footprint is hugely sensitive to just buying and selling single companies. Like we sold a cement company last year. I mean, honestly, enormous, enormous impact. Or like um, one of our managers had a position in ESCOM, which they then no longer have. I mean, again, really large. We have no control there, by the way, when it's an external manager of the positions that they're holding. They could just as easily buy something like that back again into the portfolio. So it isn't linear and it isn't smooth. And I think that's something that trustees need to really be comfortable with. And, you know, you might feel like you're not making the progress in the way that you want to be. But the other thing that we've been doing really internally at USS, not just for net zero, actually, but I think it is incredibly additive to our net zero ambition, is we've looked at our whole RI ambition for the fund. So I spent most of this year, actually, in well, sort of February to July, doing a whole sort of global benchmarking of RI. Because USS is quite a unique organisation, so we have these three distinct roles. We're a big global asset owner. We are actually an asset manager, and we're also an investment consultant because we are predominantly the advisor to our scheme. So we fulfil the role of like a Mercer or a Towers Watson. And actually, it's the first time I've done this, but I actually took our three roles and we benchmarked them all separately. So we looked... At global asset owners, we looked at global asset managers, and then we looked at UK investment consultants. Because of all of the regulations, particularly on fiduciary responsibility for RI, we thought actually it doesn't really matter what the like Dutch uh, investment consultants are advised, like their regulatory regime is just completely different when it comes to RI in particular. And so we did this whole piece of work. We spoke to, I think, 20, 25 peer organizations around the world. We tried to speak to them where it wasn't always possible on the same topics. So we tried to look at, you know, like manager selection, governance, net zero, all that sort of thing. And then we sat down with all of the sort of interview summaries and we tried to pull out themes from all of these interviews that we'd done. It was really interesting. We came out with five themes that we felt were going to shape our proposition to our board. And so the first one was really around actually having a formal belief or ambition statement. And that seems like great practice. People who have that seem to get a lot more done. So have a belief statement or an ambition statement, not too long, something quite focused. So, okay, well, that was easy. We've got one of those now. (laughs) I mean, not easy, but, you know, tick. The next one was around accountability. And I think that was really clear. People really need to feel like they are accountable for RI, not just in the RI team. You need your whole organisation to feel accountable, particularly your investment teams. And so that accountability and ownership was just huge. And so you can do that in really soft ways. Like, for example, next year, everyone at USS who has like an investment or an advisory role will have an RI objective. We have a balanced scorecard. So USS we're not compensated just on our performance of a benchmark. We have a balanced scorecard that has six categories. RI is one of those. Um, You know, client advice, all sorts of categories. And I think, again, if you compensate people for the way that they think about RI and how much they're thinking about RI and the way they're integrating that, that makes them feel they own it and it makes them accountable. So that was a really big theme. So then engagement and integration was another really huge theme. And I think that was really interesting We saw really good practice like integration and engagement was very much PMs owned the engagement with companies. It wasn't the RI team that owned it. It was very much like the PMs owned it. 
they engage directly, those sort of organisations had much better outcomes for engagement. Because again, companies, I think if it's the PM saying to you, this is really important, they listen because they know that that's the financial decision maker. And so I think that level of integration, and again, like, you know, with the liquid assets, which we're already really doing, but integrating it into your deal management. So when you're looking at a company to buy, when you're looking at the asset management of that company, you know, like all those sorts of things. Thought leadership was the other theme that really came out. And we really felt like thought leadership was one where that raised a lot of questions for us. We could see that some people were doing a lot of thought leadership and not necessarily making progress towards priorities. We felt like best practice was actually more targeted thought leadership. So I think we saw organisations that had a clear belief statement, that had clearly identified priorities, and they did discrete pieces of thought leadership that were like, coherent and tied back to those beliefs they made more progress I think than companies who were just putting a lot out there and I think that comes back to that kind of accountability discipline integration of it's not about talking about it for the sake of it it's about what are we doing what do we want to do and what are our three priorities that we're going to focus on and we're really going to drive results in those areas and then the fifth one was a really emerging theme and that was around asset allocation And I think we saw very few people who genuinely integrated RI into asset allocation, like at the top of the house. And that's something where actually I would say we were not ahead on pretty much any of these categories at the start. But we have a really strong plan to get there in three years. Asset allocation, I think, was an area where we were doing really well. And we've been doing some really interesting work, which we published actually last week, the first piece of with Exeter University on climate scenario analysis, asset allocation. Such a good paper really good paper and just such a phenomenal team at Exeter that we've been working with like incredible world-renowned academics on this topic and Mirko who's our head of asset allocation I think he's really ahead of most people on his thinking on this and we are genuinely integrating that now into the way that we work and not just those scenarios but also from a behavioral level like how do we think about asset allocation because it's not natural I don't think that's the way that asset allocation has been done so we're now even looking at like having some behavioral finance experts to help us think about that and we're looking at expanding the range of topics that we do as well as continuing that work so they were our five themes so our board then has approved like our three-year plan now on that and we're starting work on it so we had first pilot session of RI net carbon zero training for the organization yesterday which again I think was really part of that kind of accountability is just like Or if you educate people and if they understand the issues and if they understand what these various things mean I think it's a lot easier for them to be empowered and out accountable and own things so I always sort of say to people people say oh what's the grand ambition then there's just no grand ambition it's probably about 30 small little things that we need to do that will culturally change the organization and then I think from that we will have huge success in this area wow that's amazing. That's very exciting, but it just makes sense when you talk through it. It's about if you focus on it and you have people accountable, then you'll make progress. I think, yeah, it's quite boring, really, isn't it? I know. But so many yeah. people aren't now. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, that was sort of where we got to with thought leadership. It was like a lot of people are like putting a lot of stuff out there. Yeah, kind of scattergun. Yeah, but I don't know whether most people are really looking inwardly and mm. saying, having like an honest conversation with yourself and saying, okay, right, what do we actually really need to do on like the baby steps? And I did say to the board, like, I've done a lot of work here. There's a lot of slides. There's a lot for me to talk you through. But ultimately, it comes down to some just quite small, little things that we need to really just continue to work on for the next few years. 
I also think when there's a subject as broad and intangible as climate change can feel, it's really important to break it down into more tangible steps. Then you start getting into things like biodiversity. It makes climate change seem very contained and easy. <laughs> I don't know if you've looked much at the TNFD, but that is like another level of just mind-boggling challenge. I can't even begin to imagine what metrics might be in place for that. Yeah, I mean, there's just a lot, isn't there? I think that's it. And with the climate stuff, it's more measurable. So we've got the data. You know, we can question about how useful some of that is, but we do have data and metrics. And with biodiversity, it's going to be... Even... Really tricky. Yeah, and I think it's maybe disingenuous to say that you are doing a lot on that anyway. Like, I'm not actually sure that anybody has got any data. We're doing a big data project at the moment, so it's one of the things that we're trying to feed into there. We're in a learning phase, yeah. really much more on biodiversity. I don't think we're in a place where we can say, oh, this would be a target or this would be, mm-hmm. we're just not there. Yeah, well, I think that might be on the DCIS research agenda for next year. I feel like everyone is in learning mode on TNFD and biodiversity at the moment. Anyway, Naomi, tell us what a typical day would look like for you. I really just don't have a typical day. And I always <laughs> say that to everybody when I interview them to be in my team. Like I've, we've really learned as a team, we just always say to people, if you want to have uh, a typical day, yeah, then you really shouldn't join our team. <laughs> like genuinely, I make my team say that to everybody. That's just not what it's like here. There's always very fluid. So, yeah, I think a typical day for me, sadly, nowadays really is quite a lot of like committee meetings or board meetings. Unfortunately, I've got one quite soon. We do have a lot of committees at USS. It's quite a governance heavy organisation. I mean, I think that's right, given the responsibility that we bear. But yeah, there's a lot of that. A lot of talking to people around the organisation. We're quite sort of a a communicative organisation. When I come into town, I do really enjoy going and having a falafel for lunch. Yeah. And then... What else is in a typical day at USS? We've got a really nice big kitchen in our organisation. So I think probably just having a nice chat with somebody over a coffee or, you know, I think we tend to only come into the office about half the time at USS. So I think when we come into the office, it's a typical day for most people is really just trying to catch up with people, see what's going on, build those relationships. And we're really lucky to have a really good social space to like do that in the organisation. I think that's really great we've invested a lot in the office over the pandemic to make it a really nice place for people to come since coming back to work and I think that is really positive. It's interesting isn't it how much workspaces have evolved pre-pandemic you had a desk and I used to have a massive desk like huge big corner desk like you know we all had like these pod things around us you know now we've got these sort of tiny desks but everybody's very collaborative sitting close together we've got lots of like sofas in the office and nice big kitchen yes it's just a different thing isn't it but it's, it's really nice it means that you see people a lot more you chat to people when you're in when I'm at home I tend to spend most of my days on teams calls which is not the healthiest but yeah I do enjoy coming in and what's keeping you awake at night Oh, gosh. Other than your three small children. Yeah, I mean, largely my three small children, actually. I would say I don't struggle to switch off that much. They need to get to that level of tiredness. Yeah, yeah. Just like as soon as you get to bed. Things that I worry about, probably generally, it's often more related to like the way we're communicating with members and their level of understanding of what we do and what we offer and how they can best interact with their pension to have good outcomes at retirement. I think that's something that I'm not sure we've entirely cracked yet. And it's something as an industry, like nobody's that interested in their pension. I think as an industry, it's something we need to really help members to understand, you know, am I contributing the right amount? Have I thought about my plans for retirement? Do I need to do anything to make sure that I get what I need to out of it? I think that's probably the thing that worries me the most at the moment. I suppose AI is probably the other thing. 
not sure I've completely got my head around AI and I don't think anyone's really got their head around AI and I think because of a lot of focus on like carbon zero biodiversity that sort of thing obviously that forces a lot of investment into tech companies and AI maybe isn't a huge threat but if everybody's investing much more in tech companies maybe it becomes more of an issue something we've been chatting about a little bit internally and if you had one ask of asset managers what would it be I would have to say lower fees because then I can deliver better value to my members. I also know how much it costs to do the job from my internal teams. So definitely think, yeah, lower fees. If you've got the insight track. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time. It's been great. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Changing Worlds New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform. See you next time.